Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Colette Bennett and I'm Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know by now, we release three different types of podcasts. Our SJI 10-Minute Lessons series aims to educate and inform listeners on a particular area of policy, giving a brief overview of somewhere in the range of 8 to 15 minutes and hitting on the key points that people need to know. Our SJI Interviews series, where we chat to experts on a range of different policy areas, and our seminar series, which provides opportunities to listen back to some of the most important presentations at past events. This is one of those. In today's episode, we take a look back to last month and our annual social policy conference, where Joe Larragy of Maynooth University and author of the book on social contract considers the possibility of a new social contract for Ireland. We hope you enjoy it. Dr. Joe Larragy is the author of Asymmetric Engagement, the Community and Voluntary Pillar in Irish Social Partnership. Uh, he's a lecturer in social policy since 2001. He studied economics and sociology in TCD, uh, and he's gone on and gained an MA in social theory in UCC. Previously, he was social policy analyst at the National Economic and Social Council, and prior to that, research officer at the National Council on Aging and Older People. While working at Minute, he was awarded a PhD in social policy from UCD. His research interests include aging, state-civil society relationships. Joe, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you very much, Mick. Um, and um, uh, I want to talk about the Irish perspective, but I, it is also a global perspective uh, in my view. Um, but first, I just want to say uh, thank you to Social Justice Ireland for having me along today. And, um, um, and I think we do need to acknowledge the work that has gone on through uh, Social Justice Ireland and its predecessor, Cora Justice, over uh, several decades. Um, it's been a huge contribution in terms of um, injecting uh, original analysis and um, uh, uh, debate and ideas into uh, discourse around public policy in Ireland. And um, I, I think we, we need to acknowledge uh, that contribution and such contributions. So um, essentially, my, my theme is, uh, is, uh, is social dialogue and social contract in a world at fever pitch. Uh, what, are the, what are the chances? And um, um, so essentially, the, the context of this conference is, is truly remarkable. A, a pandemic has gripped the world for nearly a year, uh, now dubbed the new normal. Uh, but, but how normal was the world before COVID-19? Uh, the last decade has been anything but normal whether viewed at national or European level, uh, or in broader geopolitical terms. So we are still dealing with the legacy of the 2008 global financial crisis and the property bubble. But even before the 2008 crash, in the good times, the old normal was not all motherhood and apple pie. For all the wonders of the booming 1990s and early 2000s, there were also the woes widening uh, social inequality and economic growth based on an environmentally unsustainable foundation. Before the outbreak of COVID-19, uh, the public in most societies were only just waking up to the external threats of global heating and climate disruption. Uh, here too, our business as usual model, the old normal, uh, threatens the physical foundations uh, of human society. And for too long, 
a radical shift to a post-carbon economy was postponed, uh, now making it much more difficult to achieve. So uh, <clears throat> it looks inevitable now that we and our children in particular are facing irreversible climate damage uh, in the coming decades. Uh, and hopefully at COP23, 26 next year, which will be hosted in the UK, uh, it's, uh, it, 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 it will be um, vital, in fact, that we achieve it a step change towards a zero uh, carbon economy. Um, it should not surprise us that there is also an escalating crisis of political rationality at the moment. Since the crash of 2008, uh, departure from the old normal has accelerated and the legacy of short-termism at the micro level is fast translating into ills at the macro level and new crises of governance have increased in frequency amid new instability at global level. Um, and we must address here the failure, the failure of neoliberalism, uh, which has been revealed by the crash, has in addition thrown up very disturbing trends, such as far-right movements, drumming up hostility against, for example, migrants and ethnic minorities, and the deliberate stirring up of militant nationalist populism for political purposes. Instead of informed debate intended to bring about, to bring some truth to the surface, we are witnessing a cheapening and a spoiling of political discourse in public life, characterized by the rise of corrupt and self-serving politicians, cynical media manipulation, and disturbing stirrings of delusional uh, national triumphalism in several countries. Ultimately, who benefits from this? The decline of public discourse and the creep of xenophobic authoritarianism, populism, and predictably several other isms, racism, sexism, ageism, ableism, coupled with now with climate denial and now COVID denial should stir us all. The rise of these ideologies is proportionate to the collapse of public discourse and social dialogue informed by the virtues of public spiritedness and healthy democratic life in the broadest sense. In many parts of the world today, what Habermas has described and analyzed over the decades, the public sphere is in danger of being extinguished Never mind the USA, Brazil, the Philippines, Russia, China. Habermas wrote about this danger most recently in the German context. Against such a backdrop, the appeal for new social dialogue and social contract is, to say the least, timely, urgent indeed, and bears re-examination as a way of getting to grips with today's challenges, not just in Ireland, but more widely. Ireland now sits astride the Atlantic economy, benefiting from growth and modernization, driven by high-tech inward investment and export and related indigenous economic expansion, inward migration, membership of the single market, pooled sovereignty of the European Union. Politically, Ireland has benefited from the many regulatory human rights and social aspects of the European acquis too, since its accession in 1973. And despite the legacy of its own past and the many forms of social oppression that marred the independent Irish state, the repercussions of the troubles, etc. Ireland has benefited from stable political institutions and democratic culture. However, Ireland is embedded in the global economy like never before. And as, relative, as a relatively privileged place, which it is now, comparatively speaking, Ireland has a greater responsibility and uh, needs to examine its conscience in relation not only to disadvantage at home, but to its impact in the wider world. Ireland may think itself clear of the dangers of right-wing populism, etc. The best little country in the world, if it wasn't for the weather, etc. 
but we saw what followed the hubris in relation to the economy in 2008. We should not be complacent. Um, Ireland's experience of social partnership and other exper experiments in participatory democracy, such as the Citizens' Assembly in more recent years, provide much to learn from in relation to promoting social dialogue. In the period from 1987 to 2008, uh, in a strictly Irish context, a new form of social dialogue, social partnership in support of a social contract was established in Ireland. While neighbouring Britain forged ahead with new right politics of class confrontation under Mrs Thatcher, in Ireland such confrontation did not happen as state and interest groups found a path to social partnership. At the same time, this path moderated rather than confronted the embrace of neoliberalism. Where the UK saw great discontinuity from 1979, Ireland saw considerable continuity as it continued its own policy of attracting foreign investment and engaged actively and profitably with the process of globalization as the latter deepened in the 1980s and 90s. And that long period of continuity, which stemmed from the replacement of protectionism and inward mindedness, going back to 1958, was abruptly interrupted by the crash. When the financial and property bubble collapsed in 2008, the fortunes of many changed for the worse, with falling pay and rising unemployment, thousands of house purchasers, mostly mortgaged to the hilt, fell into negative equity and arrears, while increasing numbers joined the ranks of private tenants facing escalating rent and homelessness increased. One bright spot in the wake of the crash was, and some considerable part of the credit should go to Corai Justice and others in the community pillar for this, that the social security system provided some income protection in the course of the ensuing austerity in Ireland. This in turn had deeper underpinnings in an underlying social contract uh, which endured even amid this change. The basic social security system, largely a variant of the UK heritage stemming from the new liberal reforms of 1906 to 14, which in post-World War II years echoed, perhaps too weakly, the Beveridgian welfare state and expanded in the 1960s. This has, despite the turmoil, endured as Tony McCashin has pointed out in his, uh, in his um, recent book. Um, sorry, I've just lost my, just lost my, um, my place there, sorry. Yes. Um, <clears throat> There's some, I'm afraid there's something happening with my script here. I'll just um, try and scroll down properly. You're grand, John. There's no, 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 no mad panic. You're okay. Okay, so one of the main innovations in social dialogue in Ireland in the context of social partnership uh, from, from um, uh, 1987 till 2008 was the extension of participation in social partnership beyond the interests of business, farmers, the trade unions, etc. And in my book on the community and voluntary pillar in social partnership, I summarize my assessment of the community pillar in terms of a concept of asymmetric engagement. And at the heart of this concept 
is that contemporary polities are characterized not only by an unequal uh, balance of resources, but also an asymmetric balance of power. And uh, there is ongoing contestation around legitimacy, which ensures that this asymmetry is not stable. So seen alone, the community pillar could be easily dismissed, especially as compared with the resources, economic power, and bargaining positions of, of employers, or the bargaining strength of trade unions indeed. However, when studied over time, and I cover 20 years, the community pillar made up of small currents, mini movements, articulate analysts, and policy entrepreneurs, these junior partners come out of the analysis much better than many expected. But their influence derived not from their acknowledged internal virtues in isolation, but from how these virtues can impact in the wider context of economy, state, and civil society. Economic fluctuations, political cycles, and other dynamics and instability make for shifts in the demos when they manifest in crises of legitimacy and political rationality in government. Moments of possibility can arise, and these moments can become windows of opportunity when tried and tested recipes and, and politics are seen to falter. In such moments, the small occurrence with the critical analysis can indeed make real connections with these shifts in the electorate or the wider body of citizens. Now, I don't want to overstate this influence. The community pillar was not powerful like the business sector or farmers or the trade unions. Those constituencies had greater resources and considerably more bargaining power even if there was inequality among them too. However, it would be wrong to characterize the community pillar experience as one of incorporation of dissent without any gains. There were wins and tangible benefits and several significant changes of policy direction within a broadly framed model of liberal representative democracy. There were gains in relation to poverty, gender inequality, local participation and community development apart from the intrinsic benefits of participation in negotiated government governance by more marginalized sections of society. From a social dialogue perspective, however, the abandonment of social partnership by the employers and the government in the aftermath of the financial crash also revealed how asymmetric this system of engagement always was, not only in relation to the pillar, but also in the community pillar, but also the union side. The Irish experience of those decades can provide insights for the emergent challenges of the present and the future in Ireland. However, contemporary challenges in Ireland are increasingly global in character. The financial crisis of 2008, despite its accentuated effects in Ireland, was ultimately global. Similarly, climate change is a global challenge. And of course, the COVID-19 crisis is global. 2008 was the moment when the neoliberal super project turned visibly sour. It revealed all too well what happens when neoliberalism is not embedded in correspondingly strong countervailing norms, institutions, and distributional justice, typically underpinned by the state. Since 2008, the world has been living through a crisis uh, uh, through what Crouch and uh, Philippe mentioned this earlier, described as the strange non-death of neoliberalism. The project is now headless, but still running around the yard. In effect, the framework of national states has been overwhelmed, and without a new global accord, 
and a new paradigm, there are real dangers now. Strategically at global level, the crash accelerated the changing balance of power, not just in economic terms, but in geopolitical terms. Uh, see, for example, uh, Graham Allison's thesis on the Thucydides' trap. Uh, China, already the workshop of the globalized world by 2000, continued to tow the world economy out of the doldrums after 2008 and came onto the global stage as a major regional and significant global power. It still grew during the Great Recession, albeit not as rapidly, innovating in every field, exporting capital, emerging as a strategic player through its Belt and Road strategy, and increased influence in the South China Sea, and more generally in Asia, Africa, and even in the Antipodes. In the US, after the financial crash, the Obama presidency, while leading a recovery at home, also recognized this changing scene, and despite the ongoing crisis in the Middle East, tried to develop a pivot to Asia in its foreign policy. And yet there were some signs of dialogue, and <clears throat> yet there were some signs of dialogue before 2016. For example, after decades of dithering on climate uh, action, the USA and China began to recognize the urgency of coming to grips at a global level with the shared challenge during uh, 2015, uh, during the COP21 climate talks which ended in the Paris Agreement. Limited though this step was in climate terms, it was a rare yes we can moment, an opening for common purpose that might even have improved the chances for diplomacy around the Pacific. Of course, this hope proved premature. The subsequent uh, US administration, uh, 2016 to 2020, RIP, reversed all that, abandoning the Paris Agreement being against climate science and making an obsession of China not as a coherent strategy, but as one more theme in making a reality TV show of the US presidency. Tragically, as the extreme manifestation of the pandemic in the USA reveals, government by bully pulpit tweets on social media is no substitute for the hard graft of political and social dialogue. But the Trump presidency, like some other presidencies across the planet today, is symptomatic of the bizarre world of post-truth and typifies the wider vista of the strange non-death of neoliberalism, as Crouch puts it. Another four years of that would be catastrophic. I now can say would have been catastrophic, I hope. A snowball's chance in hell for dialogue. Well, reactionary populism seems like a good term for what we're seeing across the planet today, and it will not fall back of its own accord. It's reactionary in the sense that it lacks cognitive content and is driven by nervous reflex, fear and despair and denial. This has happened before. It is what lay at the root of fascism in the 1920s and 30s. Today, and not only in the USA, there is a partial collapse of trust, belief in liberal democracy, separation of legislative, judicial and executive power, respect between nation states and respect within them safe harbor for refugees, etc., have been dealt a serious blow. Here at home, the 2016 Brexit referendum passed by a whisker amid whipped up fears of migration has several of the characteristics of reactionary populism, replete with brinkmanship, breaches of trust in cross-national cooperation, stifling meaningful dialogue, breaching parliamentary rules, and reneging on treaty obligations. 
There are ample signs of the same dead-end politics everywhere across the continent of Europe. Although the EU is seen as a collegiate entity, more than the sum of its parts in ways, and has held the line in broad terms, Europe's member states are too are laced with dangerous trends, and the EU itself consequently has not covered itself in glory on refugees. The reason for these broader observations is that the world is now more tightly knit. Time and space have been annihilated by communications technology, as the platforms we are using for this very conference uh, reveal, which is good. But as Ulrich Beck pointed out, global economic activity has now overspilled all previous boundaries, leading to environmental destruction and created globally a risk society. The climate, the climate crisis is a mega risk which epitomizes this. But these risks are multidimensional, financial, social, environmental, human, and consequently and crucially political. The biggest threats are now to democracy and nation-state institutions, and not only national institutions. White House badmouthing of the UN and laterally the WHO has become a worrying feature of these reactionary populist outpourings. These fragile and sometimes imperfect institutions were created to defend human rights, uh, create human rights conventions and protect health and well-being globally, and also to shine a light on violations by government across the globe. Pulling the rug from under these bodies is a cynical act beyond compare in recent times. Against this backdrop, there is a compelling argument to address the question of social contract in new conditions, conditions that are now much broader in scope and global in scale. We as a planet face a choice between attempting to develop responses cognitively through a new dialogue, political and social, or simply marching on brainless based on some notion of the old normal. Excuse me for going back in time, but the sophists of the ancient world could, if paid enough, argue a hole through any pot, prove any point, and simply win any dispute. In effect, the truth was whatever you could make people believe it was. Socrates, on the, on the contrary, argued that it was valid only to pursue truth, ask questions, and thrash things out dialectically to reach valid propositions. Out of this dedication to truth, to truth through dialogue, emerged the influential political and moral philosophy of Plato and Aristotle, and the legacy that has been part of philosophical debate to the present. Not everybody agrees with the Platonic view of the world today, of course, but many appreciate it. Today's world is replete with what the modern equivalent of sophists, spin doctors, partisan think tanks, pseudo-scientific institutes funded by the tobacco, coal and, coal in and oil industries, political shock jocks and any number of people skilled at and ever willing to argue holes through different pots if paid enough. But who will, who now remembers the names of the sophists of the ancient world and who would want to remember, be remembered as a sophist of today? I do not know what the immediate chances of such a dialogue are against the prevailing hegemony. As I have argued, however, asymmetric power and resource inequality cannot indefinitely override the independent voices, the Socratic minorities championing social justice at national level. Scaled up, the same dilemmas face the prevailing hegemony across the planet as face it within nation states, which is a cause for hope. The evident failures in global arrangements demand a new dialogue that is fully informed by the best science, uncorrupted by vested interests, and value-driven towards just social institutions and processes. 
Today, the term social contract is commonly used to refer to the post-war class settlement embodied in the modern welfare state and backed up by Keynesian macroeconomic management and sometimes buttressed by active mechanisms of extended political exchange or negotiated governance in the form of social partnership or neo-corporatism. Not all founding thinkers on the welfare state have viewed it in social contractual terms. In his classic text, Marshall in 1950 viewed the welfare state not as a social contract, but as a completion of the long march over the growth of citizenship seen as a progressive, as a progression from civil rights in the 18th century through political rights in the 19th and followed after a long period of turmoil in 1945 by social rights embodied in the welfare state. Rawls, however, the American philosopher, uh, did. He drew on classical social contract argumentation in such a way that it provides for him a logical basis for the welfare state. He argues by addressing the more general problem of social justice and resolves it through principles of a social contract. This contractarian approach he derives, unlike Marshall's appeal to an imminent social dimension of citizenship that might be viewed as teleological, by following a rational logic. However, while utilitarian thinkers using individualistic assumptions about human nature usually land on the market as ultimately the best of all possible worlds, Rawls, by starting from a similar methodological individualist position, putting equal liberty to the fore, reached a different conclusion, one which heftily qualified the writ of the market by so arranging resource inequalities as to benefit the least, the least advantaged. Whether argued in Rawlsian uh, or in the more general form of a class settlement, the term social contract has often been fitted to the welfare state as an implicit or explicit acceptance that capitalism will live with substantial state intervention while its critics and opponents will concede the rights of private property and capital accumulation. Welfare state settlement has been attacked particularly from the 1970s, but has survived. It has survived the crisis of the 1970s, the decades of neoliberalism, and even the post-2008 austerity. Now, however, it will need to be reinvented in the context of the breakdown in the neoliberal super project and the need for a truly, uh, a truly uh, super project against climate change. There are some big questions to confront if the social contract is to be revisited and renewed for the coming period. Much has already been done with the welfare state. It used to be heavily gendered, dominated by a male breadwinner model, as pointed out in a recent book by Mary Daly. That has changed somewhat. It was originally conceived as a national level contract, uh, but with greater economic integration, uh, migration and transnational markets, much has changed here too. And renewal of the contract must become internationalized. And of course, it must be consistent with and even contribute to environmental renewal. Here are some aspects worth considering as part of the needed dialogue. I'm, I'm almost at the finish now, you'll be glad to hear. First of all, I suggest that we break from neoliberal capitalism. Since the 1980s, the adoption of neoliberal policies has had a good run, but it is out of time. It is generating greater inequality, macroeconomic instability, financial bubbles, environmental degradation, while the privatizing of vast areas of what was once 
uh, part of the welfare state in pensions, health, education, etc., will just reinforce inequalities. It's the growth economy, stupid. Uh, government is always seen, uh, sorry, growth is always seen as the solution to the problems of capitalism. However, the growth model of, of the neoliberal era from the late 1970s is environmentally dangerous beyond imagining and ultimately threatens the natural foundation of human life and society. A child can see this. So what is to be in a Green New Deal? Environmental sustainability will not be ensured through green growth. Growth itself is a problem and needs to be addressed. Our planet is finite and some form of steady state economic and environmental equilibrium is needed. We are not anywhere near resolving this issue yet. Again, we face the vexations of being locked into growth in general for the sake of profit. Uh, Goff um, on the subject of um, climate change uh, has, has made a very articulate case on the subject of a just transition. And he has argued for a new type of settlement in the form of eco-social states based on just uh, transition to a post-carbon society. And this is underpinned by the view that human need and not consumer preferences must be placed at the center of a new economy. Any new settlement must tackle social need and decarbonization as two pillars of an integrated strategy, defining greed in his words in neoliberalism and now worse things as, as, as part of the problem and not of the solution. Then perhaps we can solve the equation. Uh, inequality is another major issue. Piketty and others, the declining, according to these, the declining inequality of the 20th century went into reverse after the 1970s and now constitutes a serious issue for social solidarity and ultimately political cohesion. It is a trend that must be reversed. The rise of the super and hyper-rich is an acute source of danger and political corruption because it can trigger reactionary populism at will. Gender, diversity and civil rights there remain other substantial key questions, including the need to eliminate inequalities based on gender, color, nationality, ethnicity, sexuality, etc. While this might fall under the heading of social rights, there is also a strong civil and political rights dimension here. And this is being far from realized. Indeed, these basic civil rights are threatened and regularly violated in the context of new right politics. We need to look at the global and the local level the challenges of economic management today are increasingly beyond the national state and forms of transnational governance are vital for the purpose of regulation, redistribution and democratic governance in a world where massive private corporations and large private businesses are in a position to influence the policies of sovereign states to avoid and reduce tax liabilities and accountability. Local governance too and bottom-up democratic engagement needs to be renewed urgently to challenge the granular, uh, sorry, to challenge uh, the local and granular sources of reactionary populism. Nation states can do better in such a renewed top-down and bottom-up politics. In sum, the world is in a bit of a mess, or as Sean O'Casey said, the whole world's in a state of chassis. It will require a global solution or global solutions arrived at through valuing the public sphere 
development of social dialogue, and hammering out a new version of the social contract. This time, not just a class settlement is needed, but a more encompassing settlement that addresses environment, economic management, human rights across the broadest range of difference between people, and in the most complete sense, civil, political, and social. Can we do this? Yes, probably. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you found it interesting. If you want to read more about our policy options for a new social contract, check out our recent publication on this topic on our website, www.socialjustice.ie. And as always, if you have any ideas for future podcasts, please feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie with your suggestions. Until next time, stay safe.